Thank you, Tim, and you're a good team for leading us this morning in worship. And I want to thank Elizabeth for the opportunity that the invitation that she extended uh, early um, in the semester to come and speak. Um, Often, you know, we professors don't get much of an opportunity to speak in chapel. So when we do, we want to like pack four sermons into one. So... Um, so I hope that won't happen this morning, but I had, how do you approach a topic like living in culture? Where do you go with that? And so hopefully I have the Spirit's direction in responding to that. Let's pray together. Father, if anything is said that's not of you, may it pass away and not be remembered. If anything is said that is of you, Father, may it be used by the Spirit to do your work. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In science, there's something called olfaction or olfactics. Olfactics has to do with your sense of smell. And when you study olfaction, you discover that scent-heavy molecules bind on specific sites on the olfactory receptors in your body. And these receptors then are used to detect smell. And so there's a part of your body called the glomerulus. I've worked dozens of times to try to say that word correctly, glomerulus. And it's right above your nasal cavity and below your frontal lobe. And when you take in air, these receptors interpret that information to give you a smell. All that to say, I am olfaction challenged. There are certain scents I just cannot smell. Like, for example, last week, one of my colleagues on the second floor, just two doors down from my office, I won't say who it is, but he came to my office almost in a rush, and he said, do you smell that? I didn't smell a thing. He went across the hall to another faculty member whose office is exactly right across from mine, but I won't mention his name. He came and said, do you smell that? I said, I don't smell a thing. And what it was, was the air was just right in Sussex for the dairy farm air to come wafting across the way. And it was a very, what can I say, earthy kind of a smell. You get the scent that I'm trying to create here. It was an earthy kind of a smell. Um, They picked up these receptors, which they immediately connected with a certain aroma that I don't, I can't smell. All of us, we come and we respond to certain aromas that are very meaningful to us. We go home, your mom or your dad perhaps cooks something that just, the the aroma just wafts through the air. Uh, In scriptures, this idea of the aroma, of the fragrance, is one of the powerful ideas used to talk about Christ. The first time we find a reference to fragrance in redemptive history is when the tabernacle and the temple and then on the priests were anointed with fragrant oil. You move to the book of Luke and you remember reading in Luke chapter 7 about the sinful woman who came to Jesus, took a very expensive alabaster oil and knelt down, kissed Jesus' feet and anointed his feet with fragrant oil. Paul takes this idea, and in 2 Corinthians, he says, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads 
the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And today, the aroma of Christ continues to spread throughout the world when his disciples' lives are demonstrated who he is and who, who communicate that word by message. Now, I'm no expert on aromas, but I'm pretty certain that every aroma has a crucial element, an indispensable property, the most important ingredient of ingredients. We might say that's the essence of the aroma. And when we smell that aroma, it's just, it stands out to us, or sometimes it doesn't stand out to us so strong, but there's still the essence that, there, that is there. I believe that the essence of Christianity is Jesus and the cross. Of the rich history that we have, of the carefully well thought out theology, of the quadrilateral that we go back to as a foundation of our belief, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, the essence of all of that, the most important, the most fundamental ingredient of all of that is Jesus and the cross. Someone put it this way, that Jesus is the canon within the canon. He is the essence. He is the one. Now, what does aroma have to do with living in Christ? What does it mean to be called a Christ follower in culture today? It's to have an aroma attached to you. So that when you walk around, that aroma follows you. When you speak, that aroma comes out of you. When you sit, that aroma wafts around you. When you live, that aroma is in your space. And so as we think this morning about what does it mean to live in culture, aromas are a lot like cultures. They surround us, they affect us as we live. They help create powerful existential moments in our lives. So this message has four points. And here's the first point. Kristen, if you'll bring that up. The first point, what is living in culture for the Christ follower? I want to suggest a definition to you, and it's this definition. Living in culture for Christ followers means that Jesus, through the work of the Spirit, infiltrates, infuses, invades, penetrates, pervades, saturates, seeps, steeps, drenches, and fills, ingrains, pierces, soaks, transfuses, and otherwise radically influences every dimension, heart, soul, mind, and strength of their lives. And it shows in everything they do in their lives and with their lives, what they do, what they say, and the thoughts on which they dwell. My first term in Zambia as a missionary, I was on a huge learning curve. And I remember about my second year into this service there, we were going to have a baptism service out in one of the villages where we had a church. And so it was in October, the hottest time of the year, and the place where not enough water was there to be found to immerse. And these Christians did not want to be sprinkled. They didn't want to be poured. They wanted to be immersed. And so we came to this village. There were about 10 new Christians. And these, they did find enough water to fill a pail about this round and about this deep. And they were going to kneel down in the dirt and stick their heads down in the water. And that's how we were going to baptize them. 
When we got almost ready to start the service, someone came running up and said, no, we found enough water where we can, where we can totally take them under. <laughs> and so we walked about a kilometer from the village to a garden, which was about half the size of the chapel. And we walked into this, uh, this area, this garden. It was surrounded by a wooden fence. We found an opening in the fence, and we worked our way down to the lowest point in the garden. And we found our baptistry. It was a water hole about that much in diameter. It was this deep on my legs. Someone stepped down in the water and they checked it out and they said, no, it's good enough for the missionary to step down in this. So I stepped down in there and I still remember I was wearing sandals and I, my sandals were sticking to the bottom of what was, ever was down there. I reached down into the water. I took my sandals off and this stuff began to ooze between my toes and I grew up in Georgia in the United States, and my father was a, my grandfather was a dairy farmer, and we used to, in the summers, go to his farm, and we would go swimming in the lake that he had. Also, his cows would cool off and do other things in that pond. And so it reminded me, as I was standing there that morning, that hot October morning, it reminded me of what I used to experience when this stuff was oozing up between my toes because I had something oozing up I didn't know what it was. The water was black and brackish. There was grass in the water. There were wasps buzzing around our heads, and there were about 80 black African faces looking down on us. But I want to tell you this morning, I was, I was just overcome by the presence of the Lord that day. And I had similar experiences like that my first term and other experiences in the 15 years we had in Zambia. And I came away from that experience and those experiences that we had with this conclusion. God did not take us to Zambia primarily to preach the gospel. He did not take merely and our two small children to Zambia primarily to teach the gospel. He came, he took us and he brought us from our home in the United States. He took us to Zambia primarily, I believe, that the aroma of Christ would be around us. And that day, what I remember from that experience as I stood in that water, I remember that was what I was experiencing. I wasn't preaching, I wasn't teaching, but I was there and the aroma of Christ was, was coming out. So what does it mean? It means to be so permeated. So we look at this, so what does it mean? It means that. The second point is this, what does it include? You see it there on the screen, it includes two things. I think it includes the essence. What is the fundamental essence of living in culture today? It is Jesus and the cross in us. It is Jesus and the cross in us. And that aroma, that fundamental ingredient wafts out of us. It comes out of us. And so it, it comes and it, it seeps into us. Let me ask you, is that true in your life this morning? Can you say, as you look at this definition, can you say that the essence of, the, of, of Christianity is your essence? And that essence comes out, it permeates everything in your life, everything you think about, your interior life, which no one but you and God sees, is that yours this morning? Um, so that's the second point. Here's the third point. This is a fast message. Here's the third point. How do Christ followers live in culture today? I want to suggest to you four ways 
that Christ followers live in culture today. They live by going beyond culture. In other words, they are not attached to the sinful elements of culture. If you were to identify the number one sin in Canada today, what would it be? Someone tell me, what do you think it would be? What's the number one? If you were to say the number one sin in Canada today is, what would it be? Who said that? Pride, okay, pride, Adam. Not that you're prideful, but that you said pride, okay. All right, anyone else? What's the number one sin in Canada today? Complacency, Complacency. okay, complacency. Idolatry. Idolatry, okay, perhaps idolatry. If you were to ask many Africans, many Zambians today, what's the number one sin? The number one sin would be the violation of relationships. Because Zambians and much of Africa are so relationally oriented that to violate, to damage a relationship is paramount to calling it the greatest sin you could ever commit. And when I learned that, I look back on some of my own experiences and I was thankful for the relationships, but also say, Lord, I hope people don't have a long memory. (laughs) Because the way we understand that God wants us to go beyond culture as we live in culture. In Acts chapter 15, verses 19 to 21, you know that this is where the council at Jerusalem came together and the church in Antioch was growing and there were Gentile Christians who were coming and there were some Jewish Christians who had a background in Judaism and they were saying essentially, for these Gentiles to be a part of the church, they have to do this and this and this and this. The council came together and determined that there were some things that they should do. One was they should stay away from sexual immorality, as the translations call it. Commentators suggest that that could really be any kind of sin and culture of the day. And so the powerful message went out, and James, in his very pastoral way, said, we welcome you into the church, but here are some rules by which all of us must abide by. And so sexual immorality, we could convert that into our day-to-day with the sexual sins of our culture today. But James did not stop there, and the council did not stop there, because he also talked about these dietary restrictions that were prominent in Judaism, and they were saying, we believe you have to follow these things as well. So he talked about sexual sins. He talked about not becoming legalistic. You know, we need to hear that message today in our culture, in our day. We need to hear strongly and clearly that there, to be living in culture, that there are certain practices and certain behaviors which we just not should kind of slap ourselves on the hands with, that we should condemn. And when we think about those sexual sins, you know what those are. We don't have to list them out for you. We know what those are. And scripture was saying, James, in that very pastoral way, he said, this is wrong and we can't have this in the church. And I want to say that those things are wrong and we can't have them as what the scriptures would say. But neither can we say that if there's something else in focus in our lives other than the essence, other than the fragrance of Christ, then those things too are condemned. I remember reading in my devotions one time a couple of years ago, I was reading Oswald Chambers' My Utmost for His Highest. And he made the point that if our focus is anything else than Jesus Christ, we're out of focus. 
He said, even personal holiness, if personal holiness is our focus, then we're out of focus. Jesus has to be the essence of who we are, has to be the center part of who we are. And so how does the Christ follower respond to the temptations? By going beyond what the culture so aggressively pulls us towards. So don't let anything in culture hinder you from truly living in culture. So going beyond culture. They also live, we also live, by going in culture. I love teaching here. I love the interaction that we have. Um, I don't love questions that I'm asked that I can't answer. (laughs) I love teaching here. And I love seeing you in the word. But I want to say something to us this morning. Sometimes we can be so much in the word, so much studying in the word, that we don't study the world enough. John Stott called that double listening. And he said, God wants us to be in the word and study the word and see what the word says. But he also wants us to study the world, to see what the world is saying. He put it this way. We listen to the word with humble reverence, anxious to understand it, and resolve to believe and obey what we come to understand. We listen to the world with critical alertness, anxious to understand it too, and resolve not necessarily to believe and obey it, but to sympathize with it and seek grace to discover how the gospel relates to us. So how often do we take an opportunity to think and read politics? How often do we take an opportunity not just to read about the so-called new atheist, but to read the so-called new atheist? How often do we engage in study of world religions? How often do we take time to stay up on current events? How often do we take opportunity to study the word, but also to go deeply into the study of of the world? So going in culture. Here's a third way we go, how we live this out. Going with the culture. Going with the culture. I met a man this summer who was raised in a very fundamentalist home. And fundamentalist meaning there were a lot of do's and don'ts, and he seems to remember all the don'ts that he was told he couldn't do. You know, you can't do this, and he didn't list out what they were. He just said he was uh, near a particular, very, very conservative university in the United States, And he said, I just grew up in that atmosphere until finally he realized one day, as he said it, the world is not the enemy. It is the prize to be won for God. The world is not the enemy. It is the prize to be won for God. We sometimes act and live as if the world is the enemy. We stay too far detached from the world. And what I want to say here is that Christ followers, we live in culture by going with the culture. So what did Jesus mean in John 17 when he said, be in the world, but not of the world? I think what he meant was to be physically present, but not have the essence of the world, not have the aroma of the world about us, not be so desirous to go out and present the gospel that our lives are more known for being in the world that people really wonder 
who that person is. Is he or is she a, a Christian? And so going, going in the world, um, our accommodation to culture is not what we're called to. Our accommodation to the life of culture around us is not what we're called to. What we are called to is the worship of God with everything in our lives. I thought about um, talking about, you know, in a generation ago, tattoos were not that big of a deal, or that, I should say they were that big of a deal. I thought about getting a tattoo. For some reason, uh, maybe it's because I'm a missionary at heart, I, I value ambiguity. And so I thought about tattooing on my arm the word ambiguous down my arm. In fact, in fact, I did not do it. <laughs> but we can get so close to the world, can't we? We can get so close to the world that people wonder who we really are. And so I think as we think about moving in the culture. We have to move with the culture, but not become in the culture or a part of the culture. And then finally, Christ followers live in the culture by going to the culture. Today, there are over 7,000 people groups who still are unreached with the gospel. That represents 40, almost 42% of the population of the world. The hot spots of the world today are places like the Central African Republic, like Iran, or, or sorry, Iraq and Syria, like the Holy Land, like North Korea, like South Sudan. The issues are Ebola. In Sierra Leone today, more people have died than the whole population of Sussex. So that issue and other issues grip us and ought to grip us. And so we think of the Boko Haram in Nigeria who have been who is a, a very fundamentalist uh, Muslim group in Nigeria the, responsible for the kidnapping, kidnapping of hundreds of girls. God, God is calling us to the culture. God is calling us to the culture. And our responsibility is to respond with, with worship. So I'm suggesting to you this morning that this is what living in culture is. This is what it includes. And this is what it looks like. We used to have a pastor who taught here by the name of John Simons. Many of you know John Simons. And he would hear a message preached, and he had a follow-up question. And his question was, or I guess it's three words, yeah, but how? How do you live? How do you experience? How do you make happen what is going to be happen? A few years ago, I memorized 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. And uh, I would encourage you to memorize that passage of Scripture. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So how do we have Jesus and the cross so permeating every part of our exterior and interior life that we live above sin in a culture so dominated by sexual sins and other sins? How do we allow ourselves to study the world as well as we study the word? How do we live in the world but not be part of the world? How do we reach a point in our lives where we say, God, I'm willing to go to any part of the world, to one of those people groups that are still uh, 
unreached. We do all of these things, I think, only through his divine power. And Peter said his divine power makes it possible. So, therefore, make every effort, make every effort, make every effort, he says, to add to your faith these things. When I was a boy, I had a very vivid imagination. Uh, probably I should say I still have a very vivid imagination, but I had a very vivid imagination I was, as I was growing up. When I was six years old, I imagined that I was an airplane pilot. And so I was playing, flying this plane, and I, I found an extension cord, and uh, I went into where we were living, and I took one end, and I plugged it into the wall, and the other end of the extension cord was my microphone. And I was talking, flying this plane, and I stuck my tongue into one of the slots in the, in the extension cord. Let me tell you, it was a shocking experience. It's a wonder I'm still alive today to tell that story. I heard someone say one time that this kind of living is sort of like holding on to wires. It doesn't kill you, but it's so empowering that you really do experience what it means to have power. In a sense, I think that's what Peter was saying. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. But how? Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world. What does he go on to say? Make every effort then to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and in knowledge self-control and self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly love. <sighs> Make every effort, he says, because if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to close this message this morning. Tim and his team are going to be playing. We're not going to sing, but I want you to read those words. And think about the declaration that's there. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, for living and culture. And then the injunction and the anticipation. If you do these things, you will never fall. I like those words. I like the kind of words that say, if you do this, you're going to get some positive results. And so if the Spirit of God is talking to you this morning, here's yet another opportunity to respond.